Hello, and welcome to another new Criterion podcast. Today is January 7th, 2016. I'm Eric Simpson, assistant editor of the new Criterion. I'm thrilled, privileged to be joined again by my friend and colleague Jay Nordlinger, the music critic for the new Criterion and senior editor at National Review. Jay, Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. And I noticed you said 2016. I haven't actually said that word yet, I think, except a political context. I caught myself writing a letter the other day and putting 2015 on it. Now, it's interesting. I would say 2015 and 2016, and you say 2015 and 2016. Maybe that's because of your classical education. Uh, I I don't know. It just depends on the the mood you catch me in. Yeah, yeah. So we're we're going to uh, take a little time and preview the upcoming months in uh, music in New York. We did a fall preview back at at the beginning of September. Um, and this, I guess, will take us through the end of May, which is really spring the end preview, of season. in a way. Spring yeah, semester, spring so to speak. Exactly. Yeah. But I thought we might start by just taking a minute or two to think of maybe one or two performances from the fall that really stood out. And I know I've sprung this on you just now. Well, I learned an expression from Bill Buckley. That question's like Peking duck, requires 24 hours notice. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll... Uh, but I'll, I'll give one then. Yeah, you do. I'll, I'll start off. Um, there, there were, you know, a, a few performances that I, uh, not nothing this fall that I, I really thought is one of the transcendental things that I've seen of the last few years. But there was one performance where I was so pleasantly surprised. I know you. I think later in the same run, Jay went to hear C, Deflator Mouse at the Met. Uh, I was there for the season premiere and. That night, the soprano playing, who was supposed to play Adele, uh, by the name of Crow, Lucy Crow, was ill. And uh, she, and so her cover had to walk on, and that can be, obviously, it, it can be a disappointing thing if you're looking forward to hearing a particular singer. Of course, the covers at the Met are, they're, they're no slouches, but the, the young woman on, who, who stepped into the role on this particular evening... Um, by the name, I'm going to pronounce it French because that's the only uh, the only way I can imagine to pronounce it. Mireille Asselin, um, Canadian, it was just absolutely enchanting, and that that was a really marvelous thing to see to have someone come on with, as you say, less than 24 hours notice, and and really take advantage of the opportunity and. On, on a night when the press corps is in attendance, no less, to, to make a serious mark. Well, I was hanging on your every word, but I still thought of a few answers to give you while you were Good. talking. Good, I was hoping you would. I would say the Levine-led Flater Mouse that I saw and heard on December 30th, hmm. on New Year's Eve Eve, so to speak. It was so stirring, so invigorating, so disciplined, so un-op- un-operetta-like in a way. It was the most disciplined flater mouse I've ever heard, and very musical, and invigorating, and thrilling. Mm. Just thrilling. And when I saw this particular production, when it premiered, that was New Year's Eve 2013, I think, or 2013. Right. Uh, it was flat as a pancake. Yeah. So what I remember, it, we were both there. Yeah? yeah? God, was it boring. And also, I heard a great sort of half- great. Half of a Tannhäuser Hmm. conducted by Levine was great, truly great, uh, in the fall. And I would also cite a performance of the Schubert song cycle Winterreise by the English tenor Mark Padmore Hmm. uh, with a forte pianist from South Africa whose name I can't quite remember or pronounce. Yeah. I can't quite remember his name either, but I I saw... It's a Dutch name or a Boer name. I didn't hear the Winterreise, but I... Right, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't hear the um, the Winterreise. I did hear Die Schöne Müllerin a couple of nights beforehand. And actually, to me, it was the forte pianist who stood out. <laughs> um, and I had never heard of him. I had never heard uh, Schubert accompanied by a forte piano. And it was he was astounding. Mm-hmm. I will say briefly on Tannhäuser, I uh, didn't enjoy it as much as I might have otherwise. Although I think that was because I made the mistake of going to see Tannhäuser the night after I had finished my second day of jury duty. <laughs> so it was a little a little, a little much day. after an antsy day, yeah. Mm. So that out of the way, why don't we uh, launch into what's coming up? 
I don't know if you've seen yet the uh, Pearl Fishers at the Met, which opened New Year's Eve. I did. You uh-huh. did? Yes. Any mm-hmm. any thoughts you care to share, or are you uh, saving those for your chronicle? No need to save. Um, I thought it was terrific. Hmm. That's a brief answer. That's a Chinese fortune cookie answer. I could say a lot more, uh, but I thought it was terrific, and that Diana Damra, the, so- the soprano, was outstanding, and the production was beautiful to look at, very well conceived. Yeah, I've I've heard essentially universal uh, acclamation for this, uh, or universal acclaim for this uh, for this production, uh, particularly the the lead trio Damra, Polanzani, and Gvichian. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm looking forward to seeing it myself. I think I'm seeing it Tuesday night. So yeah, well it's um it's an opera almost never staged. I saw it for the first time when City Opera staged it, the late lamented City Opera. And it's been a century for the Met, I think. Yes, it has. Exactly a century, in 1916. And one of the great things about City Opera was that it introduced you to out-of-the-way repertory. And the Pearl Fishers has a very famous duet, but the score at large is not known. And one funny thing about hearing the Pearl Fishers for the first time is you realize that the music of the duet is woven throughout the opera. Mm. And if you had thought of that music, you would do the same. (laughs) It's just, it's an immortal thing. Au fond du temple saint is the name of that tenor baritone duet. A staple at galas. But believe it or not, it's part of an opera that is almost never heard. Well, it's sort of musically, I guess, different that way from uh, from Carmen, of course, the, the Bizet staple that we all know and love, which is musically, I think, certainly an integral piece in its way. But it it's, it's sort of a series of differing musical ideas. Carmen is one long highlights reel. Right. Um, there, are, While we're on the Met, there are a couple of other things that I'm uh, looking forward to, even just in January. Now, the the Cavalleria Pagliacci uh, double bill that was debuted uh, here at the Met last year, I, I had trouble sitting through the Cavalleria. I couldn't really stand the uh, that staging, and then I thought the Pagliacci was absolutely brilliant. Mm. So... If only I could only go to the second half. But uh, Roberto Alagna is going to be singing Cagno uh, in Pagliacci, which I expect could be really superb. I've heard lots of Cagnos. And he, one night, he was the best I've ever heard. Wow. And he was in the cav uh, that night, too, which he will not be this time, I understand. But he was no. absolutely on fire that night. And I didn't think him heavy enough vocally to do that role justice. Uh, the most famous Kanyo of all time had been a baritone, namely Caruso. Hmm. But Alanya was great that night. Hmm. Great. Now, uh, also at the Met in January, uh, we have a revival of Maria Stuarda, the first ever revival of Maria Stuarda at the Met by Donizetti. Um, and Sandra Radvanovsky, for her, the she'll be the the queen of the title, the contested queen of the title, Mary Stewart. Um, this will be the second leg of her triple crown of Tudor queens mm-hmm. in the Donizetti cycle. Uh, she did Anne Boleyn back in the fall, and later this year she'll be uh, playing uh, Elizabeth I in Roberto Devereux. Now, on Devereux, that, that will be the... It'll not only be the first time that anybody has sung all three of these queens at the Met in one season. It'll be the first time they've ever even done that opera and finished off the cycle. Oh. Is so, it a piece so, that you know well? Well, only through Beverly Sills. Right. Um, so Sills didn't do this. the three queens at the Met? She did it at the City Opera. Mm. Ah, I see. All th- <clears throat> when they started this cycle a couple of years ago, all three of these uh, productions being directed by David McVicker. Yeah. Um, it, they were all three going to be company premieres. Well, let me say something about Sandra Radvanovsky. I've heard her all her career, pretty much, and she was always a good singer, though hit or miss, a very good Verdian. But something's happened to her in the last 10 years. She's become a great singer, and more than a great singer, or in addition to being a great singer, she is a great opera performer all around. And I've seen her sort of grow before my own eyes, in my own ears, and it's astounding to see. For many, many years, I've referred to her as the go-to gal for Verity at the Met, but now she's the go-to gal for Donizetti. Hmm. 
And she's done some uh, some uh, great Puccini and Bellini as well. I heard her in a wonderful Tosca uh, a year or two ago, and she's uh, everybody. I unfortunately didn't hear it myself, but everybody else loved her. Famous Norma. Norma, yeah, yeah. Well, um, you want some Met things from me, Eric? Sure, if you like, or or anything I'm, else. I'm, I'm checking my. I'll, I'll, let's stick with the Met. I'm checking my list like Santa. <laughs> a little late. Speaking, of, yeah. Speaking of Puccini, you don't very often get to see Manolesco. Hmm. This is an opera I considered, I consider underrated, and I'll never forget uh, Callas's recording of the soprano aria "Sola perduta abbandonata," and it has a wonderful love duet. It is, in short, a Puccini opera, and you rarely have the chance to see it. I would also cite. More Donizetti, the elixir of love, yeah. with a splendid tenor, Vittorio Grigolo. What a voice! And uh, he'll be Nemorino. He 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 is a, His voice is spectacular, and on his best nights, um, there's this wonderful intensity about it. When when he uh, last season did the other Menel by Massenet, um, in the role of Decrio, he was captivating. I will say that he sometimes has a tendency, as I like to, to say, to make whatever opera he's in, the Vittorio Grigolo show with Vittorio Grigolo. Mm -hmm. But... It's strange you pronounce name, by the way. Grigolo. Is it? Yeah. It's very un-Italian that way. Sometimes puts, he sometimes puts the accent over that first O so people know. Hmm. Yeah. But it's hard to say because, yeah. Well, I've never it's irregular, it's him, irregularly so. pronounced. Interesting. I'll mm. keep that in mind. Mm. But So, Grigolo. I, I agree. I think that should be a terrific Nemorino, and I'm looking forward to hearing it. You know, he's an Italian opera singer. Yeah. I, I cut them a lot of slack. <laughs> you know, it ain't a Schubert song cycle. But I know what you mean. So there's a Simone Boccanegra. And Levine, if he's up to it, will do it very well. And there are two war horses in it, Domingo and Furlanetto. Hmm. And uh, I've, heard, I've heard the two of them in that opera many times, although Domingo has changed roles. Yeah. And so if they're all up to it, it'll be great. And if Levine is up to the abduction from the Seraglio, he's a great Mozart conductor. Right. And the last thing I'll say is an Electra by Strauss, conducted by Solonen. It should be tight and bristling and magnificent. And uh, uh, Waltraut um, Trautmeier is Clitemnestra, as mezzos are at the end of their careers. She, she really does feel like a blast from the past in that cast. That's right. And one thing I've said about that role is that I've never heard a bad one ever, and I think I never will, and that's because this is one of those roles in which people are self-selecting. If you can't do it well and don't want to do it, you don't. Hmm. And so um, I've heard every aging mezzo of the last several decades sing that role. If they want, those who want to, and they're, they're all good. It's almost can't miss. I would single out, I think, Felicity Palmer and uh, Mariano Lipovchek. I look forward to, to, to hearing Meyer in it, yeah. seeing her. So do I. Briefly, it's a, it's a sort of a dodgy subject. Now, you, you, each time you mentioned Levine, you did say, if he's up to it. Um, and obviously, there, I think there is a little lingering worry. We know about the health issues that he's had in the past few years and, and the the amazing recovery that he's uh, been able to pull off for the most part. Now, he did have to withdraw from the entire run of Lulu this fall, which was, I think, a great disappointment to many, I know, to you. Um, well, I've tried to see to it that <coughs> I don't want to, to preside over a medical watch right. on Levine. And sometimes my reviews uh, from the Met feel like a medical watch. I want to avoid that. Hmm. But it's very, very hard. Yeah. Uh, what do they say about people who are struggling? You know, he has good days and bad days. Right. And this Flatermouse the other night that I heard, Overture was kind of poor. The beginning of the opera was quite shaky with coordination. I thought, uh-oh. And something happened. Something clicked. And the guy just got in a groove. And it was absolutely fabulous. Same with that Tannhäuser I mentioned in the fall. The first half of that thing, that is all of Act One and half of Act Two. They weren't bad. They were simply okay and subpar Levine. Hmm. Something happened, 
Some sort of alchemy took over, and he was just himself and at one with Wagner. And you went, whoa, what just happened? And the whole character of the performance changed. Yeah, and you, you hear that great Pilgrim's Chorus, the only way you can ever imagine it being suddenly. That baby is tight from him, but at the same time, not strangled. A very hard thing to pull off. Hmm. Well, I wonder now if maybe moving on a little bit, we should take a look at Carnegie Hall, which I think occupies maybe four full pages of my notes. Go Pro ahead. Go ahead. Rattle it off. Rattle well, it off. I don't know about rattle, but let's let's see uh, a few of the um, a few of the things I've got in mind. I will say, um, it seems, and I'm always very happy to see this. It seems to be an absolute dream spring for violinists. Not that not that violinists are are ever uh, underrepresented in concert programming, but yes, they are sometimes. Well, this is a good spring. It is. We've got something like a dozen or more uh, concerto appearances. Mm. Uh, a bunch of recitals at various venues around the city. One one of the first that I'm really looking forward to is uh, late in January, the Orchestre National de France, under the direction of Daniele Gatti, will be performing, uh, among other things, Shostakovich's first violin concerto with Julian Rocklin. Um, not uh, a violinist sort of establishing himself a little more now in this country, but but previously has been very well known both as a solo pro solo performer and chamber musician in Europe. I knew him as a violist. Right, and in fact, the first time I ever heard him was in a, a recital at 92Y, the 92nd Street Y, a couple of years ago. He um, gave a recital in which he played, two recitals, in which he played not only all of the Brahms sonatas for violin and piano, he also played a, a sonata or two for viola and piano, uh, switching instruments. And and it was a very impressive set. Pinka Zuckerman style. Right. Other things in January that look great. Um, certainly Marc-Andre Hamelin uh, giving a solo recital. You've got the list piano sonata in B minor, which is... You know, I, I actually find this to be a divisive piece. I, I, I have a fr few friends who, now granted they don't really like list in general, but really cannot stand this piece. I think it's absolutely brilliant. <clears throat> it's captivating passionate, um, epic in scale. In me, you have two types in one person. <laughs> because in an earlier stage of my life, I couldn't stand this piece. Hmm. That was ridiculous cartoon music with all those tremolos. It was like <laughs> vaudeville. It was like a silent movie accompaniment. Then I grew up a little, and I have great respect for this piece now. Great respect. But what I singled out about that Hamlin recital was his playing of Buzzoni. Hamlin always gives you something offbeat from the from the Romantic era. He loves to play out-of-the-way music, as well as familiar repertoire. And so, um, and also, he's one of these musicians who, as I say, roll their own. Right. He, he writes his own music, and uh, he almost always, certainly at encore time, includes a piece of his own composition which is very important for complete musicianship. As Ned Roram once pointed out to me in an interview, the composer and the performer were never split until really fairly early in the 20th century. If you composed, you played. If you played, you composed. Mm. That was the way it was. Yeah. To a certain extent. I can think of a few, uh, a few performers. Well... I of guess course. most of them did... Some singers. Most of them did compose, yeah. And, well, I'm thinking of some violinists in particular. They did compose, although really very little of their, their composition has really been remembered. Josef um, uh, Joachim, yeah. the great violinist, wrote two violin concerti, but I, I've, I've heard one of them aired out a single time. Well, Bach played everything he wrote for the keyboard. Mm. Mozart played everything he wrote for the keyboard or violin. Chopin wrote for himself. Bartok wrote for himself. Paganini, Rachmaninoff, one could go on. Yeah. One that I, I singled out as interesting, and I think it could maybe go either way, actually, is uh, Jonas Kaufmann and Helmut Deutsch, a vocal recital also at Carnegie Hall in the big hall. Um, a couple of things about Kaufmann. He is, I, I find him to be a really thrilling tenor, um, especially in operatic performances. He is an opera singer. I have listened to 
his recordings of the Schubert cycles, and they really don't do it for me, for the most part. Um, now, it, obviously, live is an entirely different thing. When you're actually in the room hearing that, it can be an entirely different experience. He's also, I think, had some health problems in the last couple of years, withdrew from some performances at the Met. But on paper, he has a really uh, lovely program going. Um, uh, songs by Strauss, Britain, which I wouldn't really expect uh, to hear from him. I, I would think he would stick mostly to the German rep. But if you're a tenor and trying to do a recital, you almost have to sing Britain. Yeah, although you're, we're, we're talking here about a tenor who... If he weren't hitting those high C's from time to time, you could barely recognize him as a tenor. He's got such a, a, a deep color to his voice. Hmm. Um, and can, in that way, you you almost you almost forget what you're, you're listening to uh, to these familiar leader in a tenor range. Hmm. Um, he'll be singing, among many others, Zuagnung, um, Alazelen. Uh, I, uh, I, I think this could be a really good recital if he's on that night. Yeah, I think you're right when you say they could go either way. I've heard great nights from him and mediocre ones, and it's one of the best Parsifals I've ever heard, and yeah. very good Floristan and Fidelio, and etc. Another one that I, I hate to say this, but it's if it happens, it will be, I think, brilliant. Um, Dmitry Vorostovsky giving mm. a, a recital in February. Um, and he... Uh, as many people know, is is uh, currently fighting off a brain tumor. And what I understand, the prognosis is very good. Um, he had to withdraw from a couple of performances at the Met recently, but he sang a run in um, Trovatore in the fall that was, mm -hmm. I thought, magnificent. Yeah. Now, he's a wonderful recitalist. Wonderful. A um, little showy, of course. He always sings an unaccompanied Russian piece as the last thing he sings, which is very nice. Mm. He's got an, an excellent uh, regular accompanist. And a Vorostovsky recital is a kind of event. He's he's very good at it. Very good. He loves to sing Neapolitan songs. It's not very idiomatic, but it's kind of moving. No, but yeah, I guess you're right. I I don't know that I've heard him in recital, but I have uh, I have heard a recording of his or seen a video of his in which he's singing Corengrato, uh, uh, yeah. the, the great uh, Neapolitan staple. Yeah. Um, on the, the note we were discussing a minute ago, great season for violins. Hilary Hahn is uh, playing the Sibelius Concerto. Um, I don't know that I've heard her in several years, actually. No, I think that's mostly my fault. She's certainly around. Um, no, she's been around less here. Yeah, that, that may be the case. I'm going to say something that's going to shock you. What's that? I told this to Esapekka Solomon once. Her recording of the Sibelius Violin Concerto I, I think it's one of the best recordings ever made of that concerto. I think it's one of the best recordings ever made of a violin concerto. I think it's one of the best recordings ever made. Hmm. Ever. Since Caruso first sang into that horn in Ought Two or whatever it was. She's a great musician, and it's a great piece. And to use a modern expression, she gets it. Yeah. She does. Um... I've been a little more ambivalent she's got about the her lately. Iciness. Yeah, yeah, that's the thing. That's and that's the icy, thing, which is icy. she's got ice flowing in her veins. Yes. Which in some stuff, you know, I, I, she she if she plays a, a Tchaikovsky or a, a, a Beethoven concerto, I want her to you know warm up. up a little, warm bit. up. But uh, yeah, the Sibelius concerto, which really is just a a crystal. It's a it's a. I adore her. She can she can play warmly when she. I've heard her. I've heard her warm and Bach. I've also heard her too cold and machine like. It depends. Mm. Depends on when you get her. Yeah. We've got a Beethoven violin concerto actually coming up very soon at the New York Philharmonic, and it's a a violinist whom I only know in recordings to this point. Um, James Ennis. Yeah, I know him. Canadian guy. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward. Played to Played one of the best Tchaikovsky concertos I've ever heard in my oh, whole really? life. Yeah. Well, this is, I think last time we uh, we sat down to do this, I was talking about um, pieces that I will I will drop everything, clear my calendar to go in here. This is one of them. Um, when I was younger, actually, I, 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 I played the first movement on a 
Masterclass with David Kim, who is was then and is still the uh, concertmaster of the Philadelphia Orchestra, and he said of it, this piece is the reason why we play the violin. Now, that I think is also true of a great many other pieces in what is a very rich repertoire, but I don't think he's wrong. I mean, it's stupid to talk about the best pieces Beethoven ever wrote, mm -hmm. but if we could, this is one of the best pieces Beethoven ever wrote. Mm. Yeah. And and it's funny, too, that it's not... We, when we think of the great piano concerti, there's a little more flair to some of them. Um, the, the, in the last movement of the fourth, for instance, there's there's a kind of virtuosic energy that you don't really... It's not the same kind of virtuosity in this violin concerto. It's a very composed, stately kind of presentation. The closing the closing bars are some of the most heroic music ever written for the violin. But I think the rondo ought to be playful, as, as rondos sure. need to be. And I think, I think sometimes the rondos play too soberly. Oh, I agree. But but it's but there's nothing in that concerto that you know you need to to be the world's greatest technical wizard to play. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah, it's it's a a concerto with incredible spirit, and it takes it takes a really serious musician. I'll give you a a memory. Hmm. Before you were born, well before you were born. <laughs> Isaac Stern came to my hometown to play the Beethoven Concerto with the Leipzig Avantos Orchestra conducted by Kurt Mazur. Mm. And Stern was kind of old and past it. And the first movement was bad and indifferent. The last movement was bad and indifferent. So during the first movement, I'm thinking, I'd never heard Stern before. Why is he so famous again? He's no good. How did he get this famous? And the second movement, I went, oh. <laughs> That's why it was absolutely transcendental. Mm. And then it was pedestrian again. But I had a glimpse at what had made him famous in the first place. Yeah, you know, um, I've, I was always fan, uh, a fan of Isaac Stern's recordings when I, was, when I was growing up. I know a lot of people, and in particular a lot of violinists, kind of sneer at him a little bit. Well, they for all that, did. For that very reason. A lot of them were jealous. Um, well, I think a lot of them were jealous, but I think a lot of them... so famous and they, rich. They talk about how, uh, oh, well, Isaac Stern had to practice 10 hours a day. Well, who cares? Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think his playing was some of the most sincere. Well, I I remember I interviewed Werner Hink, who, a concertmaster of the Vienna Philharmonic. He said, you know, who are your great violinists? And I was expecting, you know, Heifetz, Milstein, Oistrakh, the usual. You know, Chrysler, Elman. Hmm. He said, Stern... And I mentioned this to someone later, a violinist. He said, oh, I'll tell you why Professor Hink said that. Hink loves Schubert. Stern might be the greatest Schubert violinist ever. Hmm. I thought that was very interesting. Yeah. Well, I, I, th I think part of it probably is that when we when we talk about great violinists, there's there's really only one model of a violin career that comes to mind, and that's the concerto performer. Right. Which is why right. Heifetz and Oistrakh have... Fabulous violinist, obviously. Heifetz yeah. and um to a lesser extent, actually, Milstein, but also also mm. a great concerto performer. Um, those are the ones that spring to mind. Mm. Um, it's it's hard harder to secure this that that sort of towering legacy when in your heart you might really be a recital. It's impossible. Player. Impossible. Yeah. I'll get off my violin horse for a minute. And uh, there's, in Zankel Hall, on April 17th, the Artemis Quartet is going to be giving a recital. And they are they're a quartet that, if you want to talk really superb recordings of the last X number of years, they have an album from a few years ago of Schubert's Death and the Maiden Quartet and the Rosamunde Quartet, which are two of my favorites, I think probably two of everybody's favorites of the Schubert Quartets. And God, are they good. Just intense, really passionate renditions of those two pieces. And they're they're giving a, a 
concert of Beethoven's uh, Opus 135 Quartet, Janacek Number One, colloquially known as the Kreutzer Sonata, uh, after Beethoven's uh, Sonata Number Nine, of course, and then Grieg String Quartet in G Minor. Um, I know the Beethoven 135 pretty well, of course. The others are are less on my radar, but I'm I'm willing to sort of show up and hear whatever they're going to offer. Is it called the Kreutzer Sonata because of the short story or novella of that title? I I wonder. Mm. I assume it's it's after the uh, the piece, but I could be wrong. Mm. Well, certainly, the story is after the, the story piece. is after yeah. the piece, of course. Yeah. Um, but I think there have actually been uh, you know I, Beethoven and Janáček. I think there have been a couple of other pe- people who have named uh, named pieces after Kreutzer, which is so funny because. Um, the thing Kreutzer is, I think, most remembered for today is a book of uh, etudes for violin that are great technical pieces but spectacularly boring hmm. and no fun at all to practice. I remember when I was a kid, I would just wore the grooves off of Heifetz and his pianist Brooks Smith in the um, Kreutzer Sonata. I just picked up an LP <clears throat> recently of... Um, LP? Yeah. Got a turntable at home. Wow. And it's uh it's uh Grumio. Mm. And, and, and no, uh Clara Haskell. Oh yes. Yeah. Yeah, Francis Scotty played with Kasatsu. Mm. Yeah. Well, I'll give you my Carnegie Hall ones that Great. you didn't mention. The Russian pianist Denis Matsuev. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to pronounce his name actually. Matsuev, I think. Hell of a player. Uh, sometimes a little athletic, very masculine. Yeah, he's got a, a big, uh, big stormy sound. You'll, I there, are, there are a few pianists out there who you might have a little trouble hearing. For instance, in the closing bars of a Rachmaninoff concerto, not this guy. Not this guy. Also, with Gergiev, you never know. And Valery Gergiev's going to conduct the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. Mm-hmm. This weekend of Wagner. Oh yeah. He's, there are Wagner excerpts, I think, on all three programs. Hmm. Then the Russian National Orchestra, the RNO, comes in. Hmm. And this is kind of a, it's sort of a sad thing for me. But um, So the conductor is Mikhail Pletnev, one of the greatest pianists, certainly of our time, possibly of all time. But he's in his role as conductor, which is fine. But certainly on these shores, one gets to hear him at the keyboard so seldom. Hmm. He's really one of the greatest players anyone has ever heard. And as long as we're keeping score, we've got a Prokofiev Violin Concerto number 2. Yes. Yes. On the subject of the violin, I've heard recordings of this lovely young Norwegian woman, Vilda Frang. Is she Norwegian or Danish? I don't I think know she's her. Norwegian. And I've liked the record, but I've never heard her in the flesh. And she's going to play a recital. And uh, Yefim Bronfman will play, is playing all the Prokofiev sonatas in a series, mm-hmm. uh, including with violin. There's a composer whose work I've admired, named, funny name, Timo Andres. And uh, he's a young American. And he's playing, uh, he's involved in a concert with another pianist and singer whose name is either Gabriel Kahane or Kahana. I think he's American. I think it's Gabriel Kahane. Mm. I'm not sure. At the Salzburg Festival last summer, I heard a recital from the German soprano Christian Karg, accompanied by Malcolm Martineau. By the way, that word accompanied is not a bad not a bad word in my vocabulary. <laughs> and it was a great recital, and they're essentially repeating it in New York. Yuja Wang is giving a recital. And James Levine's to conduct the Met Orchestra on a few occasions. Uh, one with uh, Evgeny Kissin. I still say Yevgeny, as we said, and we spelled his name with a Y. <laughs> uh, the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number 2. And then uh, later, Levine is doing uh, excerpts from The Ring. Hmm. And uh, I think he's the greatest conductor of Wagner, certainly since Furtwängler and possibly since Mahler. Um, anyway, he's a great conductor, and we'll see whether he's up to it. Yeah. That's... Uh, that, uh concert you mes- mentioned with Kissin, uh, Glinka, Rachmaninoff, and Tchaikovsky. May- maybe it's just because we, we unfortunately have only really known him as an opera conductor. I mean, I say unfortunately. He's 
been a revelatory opera conductor, but we never got to know him in the same way as a symphonic conductor. And so I don't, yeah, I, I think of this, I look at this and I think, this isn't a, a, a Levine program. I can't, mm. I can't imagine this being Levine music, but I'm sure it can. Well, I've heard a lot of concerts from him, mm. from the Munich, Chicago, Boston, and right. Met Orchestra. I've heard a lot of concerts from him. And I used to hear him play the piano quite a bit. I'm not sure we'll hear that again. But, you know, he was a student of Rosina Levine at Juilliard. Hmm. The guy can play the piano, trust me. Yeah. He just opted against a piano career. Well, it's also interesting. I, I love these Met Orchestra concerts at Carnegie Hall specifically because we get to hear them do things, play composers that we never get to hear them play at at, uh, at the Met. We get to hear the Met Orchestra, one of the great orchestras of the world, and, play Brahms. And don't forget, they get to do it too which is one of the reasons Levine instituted this mm -hmm. in the early 90s. Yeah. It's good for them, too. Um, there actually was, I think, one more, a uh, couple more, actually, two two more uh, Carnegie Hall things I wanted to highlight. Guaranteed to sell out, Emmanuel Axe playing an all-Beethoven recital on April 27th. Um, and on April 30th, we have the Atlanta Symphony Orchestra playing the Brahms German Requiem. Um, I have heard, great respect for Robert Spano. Yeah, I I heard them un, under Spano play the Britain War Requiem a couple of years ago, and it was really one of the greatest uh, concerts I heard certainly that year. Mm. An, an an amazingly powerful piece, uh, and I'm I'm fairly confident that this will be a pretty great performance. Me too. too. Me too. No question. Um, anything at the Philharmonic catch your eye? We we yeah. said a couple of things there, but yeah, we did, didn't we? Yeah, I'd like to name two concerts. <clears throat> Charles Dutois, Charles Dutois, the Swiss conductor, is one of our best conductors of the Respighi tone poems. Hmm. He's conducting three of them on a program, uh, and the program begins with Yu Jia Wang playing the early E-flat concerto of Mozart, the jeune homme. And so I, I very much hope to hear that concert. I expect it will be good, though. In music, you never know. And the other thing about the Philharmonic, I'll say, is that um, there's going to be a tuba concerto, and that's rare enough. Yeah. But the tuba concerto was by John Williams, and I look forward to hearing it. Is that is that part of the biennial at the end of the year, do you know? I don't know, Aaron, mm -hmm. no. I, I will also actually put in a plug for that. I... Um... Uh, from May 23rd to June 11th, the Philharmonic is going to be uh, staging their second, I guess making good on their promise, their second ever biennial. The first one was two years ago, um, and Alan Gilbert started this. In my opinion, this is actually the signal achievement of Alan Gilbert's, uh, Alan Gilbert's tenure, uh, which will be coming to an end fairly soon. He He has really made a commitment to contemporary music at the Philharmonic, um, which is a great thing, especially when you when you have your, hate to say local orchestra, but it is the orchestra that we have here in New York, competing on a, on a regular basis with the international orchestras that are there on any given night at Carnegie Hall. It can be a little harder to really capture, uh, capture attention the way you can in a town like Philadelphia or Boston, where you're kind of the only game in town. He has really carved out a niche for the Philharmonic, and I think, in I think, a very good way of making them a champion of new music. And this biennial that he's he's created essentially is a two or three week festival of almost entirely new commissions, uh, world premieres, U.S. premieres. I went to maybe ten of the the concerts that were a part of this when they did it two years ago, and you know, there's a lot of stuff in there that I don't really care to hear again. There's a lot of stuff that I really was blown away by and was really glad to have had a chance to hear. What else we got? Um, we've got... Got a little Chamber Music Society? Yeah. So I think the, the strangest program that we both highlighted last time we did this was from the Chamber Music Society. Yeah. And I've got another strange <clears throat> program. What is it? Uh, it's in May. It's a, a program they're calling Macabre. Or no, they're yeah, they're calling it Macabre. And it appears to be a thematic, a thematically constructed program of various composers 
a baritone and piano will be sing will be performing Schubert's Erlkönig. A quartet will be performing the Death and the Maiden Quartet, which we mentioned earlier. Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit for piano. Caplet, not a uh, composer that I know, but Conte Fantastique for harp, two violins, viola, and cello. And Hermann Psycho, a narrative for string ensemble. <laughs> that is macabre. <clears throat> well, I'll name two events. It was recital by David Schifrin, who's one of the greatest clarinetists of our time, and one of the greatest wind players, and one of the greatest instrumentalists, and one of the greatest musicians of our time. And I think a great teacher, too, from what I understand. I wouldn't be surprised. Also, there's a program called the Romantic uh, Viola, and it will feature Paul Neubauer, who has, forgetting his musicianship, which is very good, has one of the best string sounds I know. Hmm. Just as a strict matter of sound. Yeah. Well, there's uh, still on the Chamber Music Society, there's another Beethoven binge. Yeah. A uh, complete cycle of the quartets by actually five different ensembles over six concerts. Um, and I, I looked at it a little, a little bit. It looks like they're doing, they're arranging it pretty much chronologically. And I don't really know how I feel about that. It it seems to me that how many people do you think are actually going to go see all six concerts? Yeah, I don't know. Two, maybe? Hmm. Um, i.e. Wuhan and uh, Mr. Finkel, the, hmm. the directors of the of the Chamber Music Society. And so there may be some junkies. It could surprise you. A couple. But hmm. I, I it seems to me that if you if you're thinking of people who are probably only going to be able to catch one or two concerts in this cycle, they're not really going to get a a wide snapshot of Beethoven. They're not going to get a, a, a variety, something, you know, a, a quartet in the 70s, op Opus 74, Opus uh, Opus 18. Yeah. Early, and, middle, or late. And yeah. late. They're going to get just... I, I think the first one is like all the Opus 18 string quartets. I can argue both ways. Yeah, honestly, I, I, depending on my mood, I, I'd like to attend them. You, Mister Anti-Completeness. Anti well, also, I, I also think of the British expression "in for a penny, in for a pound." <laughs> and if you're going to go complete, you know, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um, less. Uh... But but uh, let me let me explain my 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 anti-completeness bias. Hmm. <clears throat> that doesn't have so much to do with, for example, all the Beethoven quartets in a series of concerts. Right. It has to do with an unnecessary completeness on one recital program where a pianist plays, for example, all four Chopin ballades, about which Chopin would have said, what are you, crazy? That's not what I wrote them for, you moron. It's not a series. It's not a cycle. What the hell are you doing? Yeah. But they do because it makes them, all, makes them feel all musicological, and the dimmer sort of music critic likes it. Leave the musicology to the musicologists. Please. My policy. Please. Um, now, less uh, Harold. It's funny on the if you go to the CMS website, the first item there is the there. It's almost a month away, and they're already advertising this complete Beethoven cycle. Um, you have to dig a little more, but I think no less rewarding will be a complete cycle of the Bartok string quartets. Yeah, uh, two concerts given by the Jerusalem String Quartet, who are a, a fantastic group, and I find actually especially the late Bartok quartets to be some really harrowing music such a genius he was such a genius and i hope the jerusalem quartet will be able to play without interruption which they they have not been able to do in britain oh really i hadn't heard that well because these these anti-israel nuts interrupt their concerts right it's happened to them at least twice in britain yeah so i hope they'll be able to play here unimpeded well i've got only two more picks. They're both on the Great Performers series. Great Performers at Lincoln Center. Interested in know what Gustavo Dudamel will do with the Mahler Third. Hmm. Interested to see whether Murray Pariah can give us anything good in a piano recital. Yeah. So, two enticing question marks. Well, we spent we we've spent so much time on the uh, sort of the the big name venues. Have you yet been out to this new uh, this new place in Williamsburg, National Sawdust? 
I'm not nearly cool enough, Eric. Not nearly <laughs> cool enough. I dispute that, but uh, at any rate, um, it's a, a new venue. I haven't been there myself, so I guess I'm not cool enough either. Um, but there, the, there's sort of a um, a new alternative venue that will be, I think, a major part of their programming is going to be contemporary music. Um, and as part of the New York Philharmonic Biennial, Jennifer Coe is uh, presenting a program that she she loves her titled programs. Shared Madness is what it's called. Um, not sure where that comes from, but at any rate, 30 short works for solo violin inspired by the 24 Paganini Caprices. Shared Madness. Yeah. Maybe, it, it, maybe it's a play on Sheer Madness, which was a long-running show. I, I don't know. Who knows? But that that could be uh, that could be interesting. Some of the composers include Timo Andres, uh, Samuel Adams, Philip Glass. If if you're into that, Philip Glass has never been my cup of tea, but I'll I'll listen to it. Gabriel Kahane, <coughs> whom we've already mentioned, um, David Ludwig, and Caio uh, Sariaho. Well, I'll tell you something about Phil, Philip Glass and the violin. The last movement of his violin concerto number two, uh, dubbed The American Four Seasons, <laughs> is one of my favorite pieces of recent music. It is unbearably good. I'm just about to include it in something I'm writing. I just love it. And I've, I have not been able to, um, I've been unreceptive, put it that way, to a great many pieces by Philip Glass. This piece is throat grabbing and I uh, I I went through a period not long ago when I was borderline obsessed with it so I understand what I understand the hold that glass has on certain people hmm. and before we close actually there is there is one last thing that I'll point out um, as we mentioned earlier Alan Gilbert is uh, his we we know the end is in sight for for his tenure. It's been announced, um, but they haven't picked a successor yet. Um, and there's there's a everybody, at least every one of our colleagues, I think, has a his own private short list. Um, and one person who I think has been widely discussed, I I would be surprised, I think, um, if he ended up being the the. Uh, the, the new music director, but someone who I think is a, a serious candidate and a very, very capable, even sometimes inspired conductor is Manfred Honig, and he will be leading the New York Philharmonic in April. Uh, Beethoven Symphony Number no. 6, Strauss Oboe Concerto with Yang Wang, and uh, Zuppe Poet and Peasant Overture. I'd be shocked if they picked him, but he'd be great. Yeah. He'd be great. He doesn't have anything going for him except that he's an excellent conductor. Right. He's not the right race. He's not the right sex. He's not the right ethnicity. I don't know about his politics. I don't know how much contemporary music he programs. I don't know if he's a robust advocate of chamber music. I don't know how he feels about talking from the stage. I don't know how he feels about community outreach. I don't know whether you can fundraise. But if it matters at all whether you're a good conductor, he should get a good hard look. Yeah. But there's nothing politically sexy about him, so far as I'm aware. He is cursed with being just a first-rate conductor. Poor bastard. <laughs> well, I think uh, somebody who's at least two of those boxes checked is uh, Asa Pekasalanen, who I think could be a really, a really wonderful pick. Someone who is a, a, a brilliant conductor, a brilliant composer, someone who's obviously as a composer committed to uh, to performing a lot of contemporary music, which would be certainly convenient in continuing, in continuing the, uh, the current trend of the Philharmonic, the legacy of Alan Gilbert. Let me say something really condescending about Solomon. Mm. He's grown. He's gotten much better. He was always so icy, machine-like, cold, brusque, business-like, unfeeling, unbending. He still has his discipline, heaven knows. He's still strict, but in the right way, with great musicality and humanity with him. He's given some of the best, most moving performances I've heard in the last, let's say, five, seven years. And why shouldn't conductors grow? I saw this in Kurt Mazur, whom I mentioned earlier, who's died recently. I heard him a lot 
when he was with the Leipzig Gewandhaus. A lot. And he was okay. And in his 60s and 70s, he absolutely bloomed to become both a profound, not just an old autumnal conductor. I'm not talking about that, 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 that autumnal quality that the old... No, he was exciting, mm. exciting. I saw the man grow before my very... It's condescending to say, but I swear it's true. I believe you. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. What a good, <laughs> loyal friend. Thank you so much. But really, one wants to be believed. No, it's simply true. And I, I uh, others have, have, I'm happy to say, have agreed with me when I've said this. Uh, people around Mazur, he's, he became great, and he was always good. And, and sometimes conductors are like that. They have a lot of time, unlike singers, who bite the dust pretty early. Yeah. Any other closing thoughts? Well, it's a joy to be with Eric Simpson. I want to describe for the audience, you know, he's talking about that Brooklyn series. So I think he's kind of a hipster. But if you could see him, he looks like a million bucks. He's got this, he's he's very well dressed as always. He's got this crisp white shirt with cufflinks. He's got this beautiful sort of light green creamy tie with a tie pin in it, which looks like Excalibur or something, that, that pin. It's like a, a rapier stuck through the tie, sort I mean, of. Honestly, it's, I'm sitting here with a model. <laughs> and 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 I'm in my sort of Michigan Nonsense. my Michigan wear with a flannel shirt and and baggy khaki pants and you know, I'm from Michigan and I'm this is how we dress in the winter or all year round really. Anyways, I just I wanted to give the listeners a little visual. You, you talk about a contrast. He may go to Brooklyn, but you know it's not quite a hipster look. It's really more Park Avenue. Well, I feel like one of my few redeeming qualities really is being presentable at all times. So so nice to be with you. Such a pleasure, Eric. Jay. Uh, really? So we've we pretty much covered everything up through the uh, up through the the end of this season. You know, we'll have there will be a few things here and there in the summer, but uh, for the most part, this finishes off New York until uh, until the fall. You've you've made me interested in things that I I wasn't interested in before. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and likewise, you have. Thank likewise. you. Likewise, um, hopefully, see a lot of you in the uh, in the coming months. And in the meantime, uh, thank you so much, our audience, for listening. It's, uh, it's really a pleasure to be able to do things like this. You can read both me and Jay in, uh, in the current issue of The New Criterion. You can follow us online. Go to newcriterion.com, Twitter, at New Criterion. Uh, until then, thank you so much for listening. Hope to talk again soon. Bye-bye.